Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. This is a Vault Studios production. This podcast contains graphic details of a young girl's murder. Listener discretion is advised. Previously on, Amy should be 40. We also have reason to believe that Amy left with that individual from that location and went to another area where they may have gone shopping, and that would be a mall or a shopping center somewhere in the area. I became obsessed with trying to solve this case uh, in 89 at age 11, and I would get on my bike and I would ride it to Westgate Mall, and I'd watch people come and go, and I'd look for the guy that looked like the composite sketch of her killer. Well, actually, it was a beautiful fall day. It was October 27, 1989, but it was a gorgeous, sunny day. I remember well. I actually uh, had an opportunity to go into the Bay Middle School and talk to a class that day of middle school kids, and I found out later that Amy was in that class. So ironically enough, I actually saw her that day um, in the classroom. That's Mark Spetzel talking five years ago about a day 30 years ago, a year with just a few robberies and about a dozen stolen cars in his community when he was a patrolman just a few years into the job. Today, Spetzel is Bay Village's chief of police and says that day in 1989 always comes up. Somebody will ask me about it, talk about it. You know, they'll hear Bay Village, they'll know it's a Mahalovic case. So yeah, it's probably at least monthly. And he'll tell them he's on it, as he has for most of his career. So it's personal in the sense that, you know, any 10-year-old girl who's abducted is a tragedy. And when it hits a town like Bay Village, it's personal to not only the investigators, but the community as well. So we owe it to the family, we owe it to the community to to solve this. And there's plenty of proof the case is alive. Just visit the department. There's a section for the FBI, which never left. Then the evidence room. 11 shelves with three boxes each holding stuff. Not sure what's in it all. Plus about 100,000 pages of documents. And then one of the strangest and saddest items of all, Amy's bike. It's been there since 1989, a fifth grader's bike. You'd think it would be removed. After all, there are other investigations, other things to store. Somehow, though, no one seems to think it's in the way. They just left it. The tires are flat. You're listening to Amy Should Be 40 a five-part series on one of the most haunting and heartbreaking missing children's cases of our time. This is part two. Back to our story. The last time, not long before we left off, we mentioned that the FBI joined the search for Amy the day after she went missing, about 14 hours after. So on October 28, 1989, a Saturday, Special Agent Dick Wren, who's originally from the West Coast, is on a new case, and it's personal to him. He has children Amy's age. He shops at the plaza where she disappeared. He knows what it's like to be a dad and can only imagine what it would be like to lose a child. He had first heard the news from his neighbor, then the brass, it's yours, and began canvassing the street with Bay Police. 
That day, they hear from one of Amy's friends, who tells them what happened. That Amy had agreed to meet a stranger who she thought was a friend and go shopping with him to pick out a present for her mom. A stranger who must have been beguiling. Bold. The possibilities bone-chilling. By the way, Ren did not want to be interviewed for our podcast. He said he didn't think he'd be much help anymore, though I tried to convince him otherwise. Dig up old articles, and he's in most of them. Here's what Chief Spencel had to say about the new information that day. And this male had called her on the phone and asked to go take her to the mall to buy a present for her mother who received a promotion. And we got a couple different stories like that, and we started to put together that, you know, she was lured to Bay Square, uh, basically to be abducted. And we believe it was at least one phone call, probably more, that resulted in this meeting. To this day, that's a critical detail. So that phone call aspect is extremely important to us, and that's one of the things we look for when we look for commonalities, whether it be in our area, in, in, in Ohio, or nationally. By the way, Amy's mom hadn't gotten a promotion, just a different job at the paper. Well, for the next 103 days, Spetzel's department would work with the FBI to check up on about 4,000 leads. There was little time off. While the community took in Amy like a daughter, a printing company donated roughly 2 million flyers. Volunteers shared them. Some even made it overseas. Still, nothing. Until February 8th, the following year. Her body was found badly decomposed by a jogger this morning. Positive identification was made this afternoon by the Cuyahoga County Coroner. The clothing had not changed from the day Amy disappeared, though investigators suspect it was removed and put back on. A jogger named Janet claimed she'd been in the area just the day before, but did not notice a body. Then the next day she did, and when she did, ran right to the nearby home of her friend named Pat. A little after 7.30, I heard some knocking on my door and a faint pat, pat. I went to the back door and uh, my friend Janet was there crying. She says, I found a dead body up the road, call the police. And. I tried to get from her what happened. And she says, I just saw it. I didn't touch it. So they wouldn't go close enough to touch it. But she wanted me to call the police, so I called the police. And she talked to the police on the phone then. And they came up. And we met them at the corner here. The autopsy would place Amy's time of death close to the time of her disappearance. They could tell she had eaten at least once. By now, though, she was decomposing and it took dental records to identify her. Detectives believe she'd been there a while, maybe covered by snow or by a potentially crucial piece of evidence we'll talk about later. What was known at the time, though, was she'd been struck on the back of her head by a blunt object and stabbed twice on the left side of her throat. She'd also been sexually assaulted. And then they noticed what wasn't there. Amy's favorite horsehead earrings, which she always wore, were gone. So was her windbreaker, her boots, a folder, and her book bag. The profiling began. At the time, Richard McIntosh, a retired and respected police captain who specialized in missing kids, weighed in. It helps take what now is a, a case with clues that uh, uh, are getting stale and helps freshen those clues. You're going to look for the type of wounds to try to determine what, uh, what type of instrument may have... Uh, uh, cause the death, uh, that may give you a clue as to uh, a specific kind of individual to look for, uh, 
person working a specific job that might have access to a tool like the tool that may have been used. Next, he weighed in on how a person like that might think. We're, we're now looking for an individual who, who has a propensity to violence, uh, an individual who probably lacks self-esteem, an individual who has to gain control through the use of force and violence. Did you know that parents rank financial literacy as the number one most difficult life skill to teach? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app for families. With Greenlight, you send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and keep an eye on your kids' spending with real-time notifications. Kids learn to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest. And parents can rest easy knowing their kids are learning about money with guardrails in place. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. A parade of suspects came next. But first, I do want to mention the discovery of Amy along that quiet country road was not a complete surprise. About a month before, a caller told local NBC affiliate WKYC, my TV station, as well as police, that Amy was actually a few miles away from that discovery spot in a town called Sullivan. Keep in mind, though, it was one of thousands of leads and didn't seem to go anywhere, even with dozens of FBI agents on the case. While there was now one place, investigators began looking right away. Holly Hill Farms in Avon Lake, where Amy took riding lessons, one township over from Bay Village. Here's James Renner again, who you met in our last episode. Did I mention he's written a book on the Mahalovic case? Oh, and I also want to mention we've made a decision not to name suspects, because no one has ever been charged in Amy's murder. Yet we cannot tell this story without first talking about that suspect at Holly Hill. Who hung out at the stable where she rode horses. And what do we know about this guy? Paranoid schizophrenic Vietnam veteran certainly fits the profile that might make some people uncomfortable. Uh, I've been told that this, this man was the top suspect in the case for the first 11 weeks, that they were laser-focused on this guy. Um, he, and for valid reasons at first, not only did he work uh, at Holly Hill Stables, uh, which his sister ran, he actually lived there. In a converted attic, turned apartment above an old farmhouse, stairs outside leading up. He was interesting for a number of reasons. He kind of creeped the girls out that were taking riding lessons there. So when the FBI came in and interviewed Amy's horseback riding friends, a lot of them said, oh, you know, there's this creepy guy that lives here. You should look into him. Creepy how, though? He'd wear camouflage and go wandering through the woods. And, you know, sometimes, you know, he would say things that would just be off-putting. You know, he's just a kind of a strange guy. But no incidents where he had ever actually put his hands on a girl or did something that not that I not that I've ever heard of nothing nothing that that crossed those lines um, as far as I know but this was certainly odd he knew who Amy Mihalovic was he kind of kept an eye on her um, he remembered he told a story about how when her mother dropped her off one day um, her mother was in a bad mood and kind of tossed Amy's riding boots out the window and Amy was sitting there and her mother pulled away and he went up to Amy and said uh do you need help putting on your boots? James went to meet him. And so I tracked him down and and spoke to him, and he was very— At a halfway house. At a halfway house in uh, uh, near west side of, of Cleveland, um, kind of a, a, a rough neighborhood. And uh, he came out on his porch and, and told me his story. And, um, you know, one thing he said that I thought couldn't possibly be true— 
was, uh, you know, he's like, hey, um, yeah, they, they absolutely looked at me as a suspect. You know, he said I was the top suspect for, for many weeks. And uh, I realized that even if I took a lie detector test, they wouldn't believe me because I, he, he told me he was former intelligence during the uh, Vietnam War. So he knew how to beat a lie detector test. But nobody can beat sodium pentothal, uh, which is a truth serum. So he told the FBI to give him truth serum and re-interview him. And I'm like, there's no way the FBI gave somebody sodium pentothal. That's something you'd only see in a movie, right? Well, eventually the FBI admitted it. They, yes, we, you know, they did that. So there was this uh, interview conducted in a hotel um, near Bay Village one day, and it was him, and they had somebody administer the sodium pentothal, and they questioned him. And then after that, he was kind of ruled out, as, uh, as far as I know, as a, as a major suspect in the case. What did it do to his life, though? After something like that, Bay Village is not a big place. How do you return to work after something like that? How do you go back to a normal life when you have this unsolved crime and everybody right. thinks that you're responsible for it? Well, luckily for this guy, you know, at least for 20 years or so, nobody really knew his name. You know, uh, even when I went to Holly Hill years later and and I started asking around, nobody nobody could tell me who this guy was. So I don't think it impacted his life. I, I think other factors did. The fact that he was a Vietnam veteran, uh, um, schizophrenic possibly, um, you know, he, he had other issues that were making his, his life uh, difficult. Even bigger than being a murder suspect. Right, right. There were other suspects too. James has a list of three. Two are middle school teachers. The third we'll get into later. The first on his list taught math. And he was the brother of Amy's writing instructor. So Amy had this writing instructor in Bay Village. So there's that weird little one-step connection there. But okay. he's, he's never been in trouble. Like, he doesn't have a criminal history. Have you spoken with him? I have spoken with him. And what does he say? Well, when I spoke to him, he lied to me, which is, is not good. But you, you can't blame him either because what I asked him is if he'd ever been questioned by the FBI or police about the case. And he said no, and I happen to know that that's not true. Um, but if you're a suspect in a, in a case, whether you're innocent or not, um, you know, maybe that's not something you want to admit to a reporter. The other teacher taught science. He looks exactly like the composite sketch, uh, exactly like the composite sketch. Um, he uh, lived at the time of um, Amy's abduction. He lived about a mile, less than two miles away from where they found her body in the middle of nowhere in Ashland County. And when he emerged as a possibility around 2005, James reached out to his former supervisor, learning about love letters written to one teen, inappropriate touching with others. We know 100% that he crossed lines with students. There are police reports where they found him in parked cars with underage students. Police and the FBI eventually found him in Key West, and soon James wasn't far behind, ponying up the cash to fly down and hitting the streets picture in hand. He had limited time, and at first, it wasn't going well. I was on the island for 36 hours, couldn't find him, went all over the place, went to the homeless shelter, 45 minutes left. I'm on the, find myself in the northeast quadrant of the island. I pull up to a stop sign, and I'm a lapsed Catholic, uh, but I'd, I'd gone to Sunday school for many years. I remembered how to pray, and you could call it a prayer, you could call it a message to the universe a message to Amy, whatever. But I sent out this message and I said, if this is the guy that took Amy, I need help because I, can, I can't find him. 
At that moment, he walks in front of my car. I can't explain it. That's what happened. I pull through the stop sign. I park on the side of the road. I get out. I yell. And, uh, and he stops. I walk over, and I said one of the ballsiest things I've ever said as a reporter. I said, uh, do you know who I am? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, yeah, you're James Renner. You know, my sister said you'd be looking for me. James asked about a nature center in Bay Village, a place Amy frequented and where investigators suspect the killer could have first seen her. So I decided to bluff him. And what I said was, what would you say if I told you in my pocket I have a picture of you with one of your students at that nature center? And he thought, he got quiet, he thought for a minute, and this is exactly what he said word for word. I never told the FBI I wasn't there. All I ever told them was I don't remember being there. I mean, come on, you know? Um, So Mm -hmm. that to me, I got chills. And, uh, you know, I said, well, what else don't you remember? And he said, we're done talking. And the interview was over. And I came back, I told the FBI, but, uh, you know, there was never an arrest. And, you know, even to this day, I'm not 100% sure it's this guy. I don't know what it says about the universe if it's not him. Uh, you know, there were also confessions, at least three. One during the disappearance from a cruel crank caller, then after the discovery, where a man burst into a local church and gave a loud confession. Later on, we'll hear from a witness. There was also a guy seen by the open hatchback of a dark blue car at the field where Amy was found, about 13 hours before she was found. But that witness took a year to report it. Again, a license plate might have helped, but Then again, who looks at them when they don't think there is something up? No detail was ever too small. Years pass. And then, in 2013, a rock star with the FBI signs on. Mob boss James Whitey Bulger controlled Boston's underworld for decades. He spent 16 years running from the FBI until agent Phil Torney hunted him down. Now, on the day that Bulger's sentencing has begun, Torney finds himself back here in Northeast Ohio, reassigned to one of his original cases, the disappearance and murder of Amy Mihaljevic. By now, it's more than 20 years after Amy's death, and Phil Torsney, whose detective work caught Boston's most notorious mobster, played by Johnny Depp in the film Black Mass, is in Northeast Ohio, hoping to catch a different kind of criminal after catching one of the country's most wanted ones. So it puts me in a position where I can uh, do some things that maybe have not been done before, not been done recently, uh, to try to make something happen. And uh, uh, the challenge, I guess, for me, and I, I've, you know, sometimes you have more success with this than others, is to come up with something new that's going to take this case in a direction that's going to hopefully uh, uh, result in an arrest of the guy who did this. That's him a few years back when he thought he had that something new. This lead will solve the case. And that's Cuyahoga County Prosecutor Tim McGinty, revealing for the first time a handmade curtain and blanket that were found not far from Amy's body. At the time they found her, there was some thought it was litter. But later, they learned that Amy came in contact with them both. A connection made through dog hair. This was big. Using emerging DNA technology, detectives were able to compare a hair from Amy's dog, which they saved, with those on the curtain and blanket, and found other hairs too, which we'll get into later. They figured if they could get that curtain and blanket into the public view, someone might recognize them, which was not unreasonable, 
because although the pea green blanket was ordinary, the pea green curtain had distinctive features, jagged stitching that made it look homemade. And if you knew its owner, perhaps made it yourself, wouldn't you remember? That day, Amy's father and brother were back at their first news conference in years. The parents had since divorced, with her mother passing more than a decade before in Las Vegas from complications from lupus. For a time, she had crusaded to help find missing children, even appeared on Oprah, but never got over losing a child. Here's Mark, Amy's dad. So positive, so... uh you can't deny what, what we saw there. Uh, I can't believe the uh, foresight of the uh, of the police back 26 years ago to go and take uh, hair evidence off the dog. Wow. But it wasn't over. Not even close. First, there were the other girls who got calls and evidence the killer had a type. Blonde, brownish hair, um, you know, the, the you know, white, um, you know, the very... Sp- uh, they they just all, they look like they could be cousins, you know? And we'll get into that third suspect, the one James met as a boy and then later as a man. And I look over and there's a man standing in the doorway to the men's room and he's grabbing himself. Could he have done it? We're not even close to finished. Next time on Amy Should Be 40. In my head, in my 10-year-old head, I was like, she's fine. She's coming home, it's okay. But it turned to another thing. My mother was on the news that night asking where she is, and everywhere I went, I would look for her. Everywhere everyone went, we looked for her. Interesting thing here is 10 days, just 10 days after Amy Mihalovic's abduction in 1989, he had himself committed to a mental hospital. Amy Should Be 40 is a five-part podcast in collaboration between Three News in Cleveland and Vault Studios. I'm Andrew Horansky, senior reporter at Three, working with Phil Trexler and James Renner pulling double duty as our fact checker. Our executive producer is Will Johnson. Our digital director is Denise Polverine. Special thanks to video archivist Matt Hine, Susan Moses, Adam Ostro, and our parent company, Tegna. From all of us, thank you for listening. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to give us a good review. See you next time.